0: My name is uh, uh, Steve Spielberg and I just directed a movie called uh, Jaws. Uh, Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby, your host and uh, joining me as always uh, is Ed Davis, how the devil are you sir? Uh,
1: Very well, yeah, I'm coming down on a high from having gone to see Cirque du Soleil yesterday which is uh, something I'd never done before despite living in Florida for two years and therefore living only an hour away from downtown Disney where they do a show every night and uh, that was really, really good, I really enjoyed it.
0: Mmm. So, uh, kind of feats of daring do and kind of death-defying acts in Leotards. Yeah,
1: yep, and also a soundtrack which, at some point, sounds like the kind of uh, circus of the damned music that Tom Waits made in the eighties, and at other points sounds like Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. Mm. Uh, and as I was watching it, I was just struck by how weird that this thing is really popular because, on the one hand, it's this. Kind of a traditional circus thing with clowns and acrobats, and on the other hand, it's got this really discordant soundtrack. Uh, neither of which should really chime with mainstream audiences, but you know they've been going for years and years and years, doing the same show at Downtown Disney for about fifteen years, and they've got shows all over the world. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I'm just kind of amazed by how this, what should be kind of an avant-garde bit of theatre that dies in a black box theatre off Broadway, <laughs> um, has run for so long and become this multi-million dollar thing.
0: Maybe they just got bored of doing it to the usual soundtrack every night and just chucked in some weird shit for you tonight.
1: I hope so. I think if you go there the rest of the time, and it's just, you know, whirl it some music the whole way through.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah. Um, Bit of kind of a reasonably quiet week on the film front uh, in terms of film news. Um, Although the big thing that I noticed this week uh, was Sophia Coppola has left the live-action Version of a Little Mermaid, to which my first thought was, Sophia Coppola was making a live action version of the Little Mermaid. Uh, I knew that she was working on it because I remember at the time
1: there being lots of jokes about it being just uh, the Little Mermaid staring out to sea with air playing in the soundtrack and things. Mm, yeah, uh, and I remember there were there was rumours at the time that she was going to cast like a transsexual uh, actor as the Little Mermaid, which. I think, must not have come to fruition because one of the reasons that she left was that they couldn't agree, to agree on casting. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, I, I pretty much just forgotten she was working on it because the discussion about it was kind of spiked for about 48 hours and then died completely.
0: Mm. Yeah. So her
1: departure from it doesn't seem that surprising if no one was talking about it.
0: Yeah, it just seems like such an odd choice of, you know director of material I, I mean like, it I kind of completely passed me by that that story even was a thing um, but then yeah, you think well yeah of course it didn't work out because it just seemed doomed from the start
1: yeah she doesn't seem like someone who would really work within mainstream uh, a, a kind of a big studio framework because she would probably make a lot of interesting and odd choices mm. and uh, the studio probably wouldn't be that happy with them
0: yeah yeah and, you know, you'd think that a, a studio would be more accepting of odd choices, given that the film's about a half woman, half fish.
1: Yeah, I think they'd probably be just kind of like saying, does she have to have a tail? Mm. <laughs> Can't it be? It'd be like the Arrested Development with the young man in the sea.
0: Yeah. just yeah. be And it'd be just called the little co-ed. <laughs> um, speaking of Arrested Development, that's another thing that I've kind of spotted this week. We've finally got kind of something nearing confirmation that we're going to have some more episodes uh, in spring.
1: Yeah, from uh, Brian Grazer, who said that they've, they've got plans to make 17 episodes, right? Uh, which is quite exciting, I think. I mean, you and I both, I think we both liked season four and thought that it, there was a lot of interesting stuff in it. Uh, I'm hoping that it's not going to be as uh, scattered as the last one, and that they maybe can get more than two members of the cast in the same room at any one time. Mm. <laughs> um Uh, 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 but uh, I'm still excited to see what they do, because mainly because the ending of season four was so uh, weirdly devastating for this wacky comedy that uh, I really just want to see what happens next.
0: And we're kind of still waiting on that re-edit of of season four because uh, anyone who kind of heard our season four wrap-up knew that it was uh, good, but not without some serious problems, one of which being it was a very bloated show uh, and kind of unwieldy in parts um, with each each episode focusing on a different character. And I think they immediately realised that that was the case and uh, did a re-edit, didn't they, and kind of slimmed it down. And uh, Ron, it the last time I saw, Ron Howard was recording new voiceover. But we're yet to see an emergence of that, have we?
1: Yeah, I think if it ever appears, it might appear in advance of as a way of gearing up excitement for season five, mm. if only just be like, oh, this is what the show you know would have looked like if we had not tried this crazy uh, editing process and this weird uh, structure to it. Mm. And obviously the weird structure was one of the most interesting things about it. But at the same time, it makes you wonder if maybe the show would have been funnier if you weren't constantly playing games and trying to work out where, what happened in the chronology.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and removing kind of some of the, extraneous bits from it that uh, perhaps weren't needed Um, Mm. yeah Um, speaking of things that aren't needed segue there I like that Um, and uh, going back to kind of what we've been talking about the last few weeks that it just keeps popping up um, the Nostalgia Police have been out today uh, and all week um, complaining about um, they're going to remake Big Trouble in Little China uh, Mm. possibly starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson um, and uh, People are getting very upset about it. To which I still have to remind them: it is Big Trouble in Little China, Um, and I kind of we've been talking about this few, you know, quite a lot in the last couple of weeks. Um, And I thought about this again today when reading about this uh, this news, and I thought, well, if you look at what is actually the worst that could happen if they remake Big Trouble in Little China, if they remake it and it's good, then you've got two good versions of the same story, and they remake it and it's bad. You've still got one version of the, you know, one good version, and you don't even think about the other one. I mean, what 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 are they ruining? I don't. It's not like they're they're getting all the copies of the old film and throwing them in a the river.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's always the thing with remakes is that people seem to act as if it will in some way harm the original, which I think very rarely happens, unless you're talking about the fact that people who have never heard of the original see a remake and then. Decide not to check out the original, but then again, I think most audiences probably wouldn't be that interested in checking out the original Big Trouble in Little China unless they went on a real uh, John Carpenter kick, or unless Kurt Russell's appearance in Furious Seven made them want to check out the rest of his filmography, which would be great because there's some real gems in there and some shit, mm. <laughs> which is true also for for John Carpenter. Uh, my my only real concern with the remake of Big Trouble, Little China. And I agree, Like I I don't have a huge problem with it because I think there's a lot of potential there for to have a really fun action film, particularly if you catch The Rock, who is uh, one of the you know, most watchable and charismatic actors working today, particularly in big-budget action. I would hate for them to try and make it too on-brand and have him play Jack Burson as competent. <laughs> yeah. Because what I've always really liked about Big Trouble in Little China is that it's a action film in which the hero is pretty much useless and constantly has to be saved by everyone around him. And he's just this kind of sort of lunkhead who wanders into this story that he has no real understanding of and it's up to everyone else to kind of explain what's happening and actually do a lot of the heavy lifting until the end. Mm. Uh, and so it's kind of a film that's constantly making fun of itself. And the the joy of that is that... Kurt Russell has this kind of really goof he gives this really goofy central performance that really works for the tone of the film. I think if you try and make, as a lot of remakes do, try and make it a bit more serious and grounded and gritty, you would lose 90 percent of the charm of the film.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, a character that, that not only is useless, has literally no idea what's happening one moment to the next, um, and my favorite bit of the entire film is the bit where they drink that kind of like magical Asian draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to give the magic powers, but they're basically just a bit high, and they're in that <laughs> lift, and they're saying to each other, Do you f- "I'm feeling pretty confident about what's going to happen." <laughs> and then they open the gate, and there's just like a lot of bad dudes there, and it doesn't really go very well. Um, but I mean, yeah, I- I've got no real objection if they want to remake it. If they want to remake it and it's it's good, then awesome. If they don't, you yeah. know, if it fails, then you know I'm really lost. Anything? No one has. Yeah, as long as John Carpenter gets a check. Yeah, that seems to be how he operates, just getting kind of residuals from all the remake, uh, remade films of his. Um, yeah, um, so again, nostalgia related um, story this week, uh, properly kind of things that are, are being seen as retconning what we already know, even though it's a Star Wars related story, so what we know is kind of, you know, should be kind of tempered at, at people's. Uh, knowledge or memory of the expanded universe stuff, but uh, it was revealed this week in one of the uh, spin-off comics, uh, which I think are considered as canon now in the new Star Wars canon, uh, it's revealed that Han Solo has a wife. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I saw that, and uh, I think it's very hard to judge the canonicity, or canonness, mm. of a lot of those stories, just because I think the way they treat the Star Wars comics is much the way that Marvel treat them, which is uh, their comics, which is that there is probably several continuities happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I think probably in the films, although I think it would be cool if uh, we watch it and like, it turns out that Han Solo has has a, a hot black wife. I think that'd be amazing just for the fanboy, uh, anger would ensue the, uh, Racially tinged anger that would burst forth, and people would be saying, Oh, it's not about race, it's because you're messing with canon. Mm, it's, about, it.
0: it's about ethics in video games.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's about ethics in Jedi's. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it would be. Uh, yeah, I think uh, that that is probably not going to have much bearing on the film, but I think it's quite cool that the comics themselves do seem to be quite playful and that they take opportunities to let people tell their own stories in that. Universe in a model that I kind of hope would happen with the uh, with the films, but we we obviously we have to wait and see.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want a a domestic scene between Han and his missus, where she's like, you know, I'm very supportive of your outer rim smuggling. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I just wish you'd be a bit more careful, um, because you got you know you got bills to pay, etc. etc. Uh, and yeah, so kind of, I I always just assumed he was married to Chewie. <laughs> yeah. When they say it's a life debt, that's
1: because obviously they separate, celebrate life day on uh, Kashyyyk as well. Mm-hmm. Life day is just their term for marriage.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of what they should call it over here.
1: Um, which is uh, <laughs> which is why uh, Han Solo's appearance in the Christmas in the uh, Christmas special is so awkward because he's going to meet the other wife.
0: Mm. God, we're adding layers and layers and layers to this. <laughs> um, last... You have to
1: make, you have to add layers to make the Christmas special watchable.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um, last couple of bits uh, from this week, we had a couple of trailers uh, drop of a uh, particular note. The first one was the uh, little dinosaur trailer. Uh, sorry, the good dinosaur trailer uh, from Pixar, who um, have got two films out this year, um, and kind of regular listeners will know. Uh, Pixar have been on a bit of a... Uh, a dry streak, and uh, Inside Out, early notices have been very positive for that. The Little Dinosaur, not much to tell from the trailer, but hopes are high.
1: Yeah, I certainly hope that it it is one of those situations because the Film itself has had a troubled production. It was meant to come out last year and they pushed it back because it wasn't working. And in the past, when they've done that, you know, they, some of their films like Toy Story 2 and Ratatouille both had troubled uh, productions and ended up being really, really good. So my hope would be that, that is, this is a case where they, they retooled something and it ends up being great. And you know, we have very little to go on from the trailer, but uh, as someone who has liked, at least liked, all but one of Pixar's films, (laughs) um, uh, then I've got high hopes that they can deliver two good films in one year, which they've never had to do before.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah. And the second trailer caught was um, uh, Bridge of Spies, uh, the new film from Steven Spielberg, notably written by the Coen brothers, I think. Um, And uh, I have to say, uh, I'm... Kind of thinking it will probably come out as a, a very classy um, kind of period drama about kind of an important moment in our history, um, but the trailer is basically just saying "Give me an Oscar," <laughs> which is kind of. I mean, I know that it's not the film; it's the uh, you know the way that for those kind of films are marketed, and it's in that kind of window of Oscar kind of contention. But Jesus Christ, they're laying on a bit thick in that trailer.
1: Yeah, you get the feeling that any moment for your consideration is going to uh, blare up on the screen, particularly whenever Mark Rylance shows up. Yeah. Because uh, he's such a, an acclaimed theatre actor who hasn't done a huge amount of uh, film, but now after Wolf Hall, he's kind of on a hot streak and he's going to be the BFG and you know he's got all of these things going. Uh, you kind of th- feel like this is going to be a big breakthrough role for him. Mm. Uh, I thought it looked okay uh, i thought there was had a nice energy to it and i do i am wary of it being written by the coen brothers because they also wrote unbroken which was another kind of awards contender film from last year that ended up being too classy for its own good mm. um, but uh yeah as someone who likes most of spielberg's films uh, i'm i'm excited to see what he can do with a, a spy thriller and you know tom hanks looks suitably out of his depth as someone who I believe is just an insurance investigator who gets roped into trying to help resolve an international crisis, Mm. which uh, suits him, kind of being this uh, person who's really, really unsure about what's going on. I'm not a fan of the title, though. Bridge of Spies, to me, sounds too much like a 3 to play app.
0: (laughs) Yeah, plus as well, it just doesn't really make much sense grammatically. Um... No,
1: I mean, the original title was St. James Place, which isn't... All that inspiring, but at least it—you kind of think, okay, so it's a film that takes place somewhere called Saint James Place, mm-hmm. whereas this just sounds, yeah, it just sounds really—it sounds a bit too obtuse for its own good. Is it a pun on
0: Bridge of Sighs
1: uh, or Bridge of Pies?
0: <laughs>
1: I don't think that's a place, though.
0: No, no. But if it is a pun, that's terrible. Um, yep. it doesn't really make any sense. Anyway speaking of Steven Spielberg hey eh, this is working it's like i put that last on purpose um we're talking about something fun this week i know we ordinarily have fun um but uh it's uh, one of our favorite films are uh, that uh, kind of collectively our favorite films um 40th birthday uh, this very week um jaws has uh, has kind of reached middle age um how's it looking Ed, after 40 years pretty good. I mean, it's probably sleeping with its younger
1: secretary at this point because its home life isn't that fulfilling. Mm-hmm. But it's still, it still looks pretty good for its age. It's kind of in that John Hamm sort of look yeah. I feel. Which, Where, which, you which we know is a solid
0: thing. look. It's a very solid look. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched it today um, and uh, a couple of things popped out of me um, which were kind of interesting. One, I couldn't believe Um That I picked up my DVD box and it said "Anniversary Edition" on there, and my DVD is fifteen years old, so that (laughs) kind of instantly kind of uh, made me feel, well, because I can can remember buying that, and I was just like, "Wow, where's that fifteen years gone?" Um, But also, like, what struck me is watching some of the supplementary material uh, as well. That like the common complaint about uh, Jaws is, "Oh, the shark looks fake," Um, but the thing is the shark looked fake then and they knew it looked mm. fake and they were really worried about it um, and they were kind of right up until opening day they thought it was going to get laughs um, and it, I have to say it's never been a, it's never been something that's bothered me at all um, because do you know what looks fake? Most special effects in every film ever made.
1: Yeah, I mean this is this kind of gets to something we've talked about before which is that you only really notice bad special effects if you're not engrossed in the film mm. and Uh, Jaws is such an engrossing and fun film to watch that you only really know... Like I've only ever noticed the special effects being bad because I've watched it a lot of times. (laughs) When you know everything about that's going to happen in the film, eventually you're going to start noticing the little side details.
0: Yeah. What is it that... What what makes you love Jaws so much?
1: Uh, I think a large part of it is... Certainly, as we've moved further into the digital age, I think the tactile nature of it is something that really appeals to me more and more as time goes on. Um, One of the things that... One of the quotes about the film that I've always liked is Alfred Hitchcock said about it, it was the first film he saw where you could not see the proscenium. Right. Where it felt like you were watching real people in real locations, which it largely was. You know, it was pretty much all shot on location in Martha's Vineyard, um, which is a place I went on holiday many years ago, not realising it was where Jaws was set. So when I was walking around, I felt unnerved for a reason I couldn't quite pin down <laughs> mm. <laughs> I was just walking around it's like this feels weird and familiar and then like I realized oh this is where Jaws was shot of course I feel weird um but yeah I think that 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 the the fact that you're seeing real people in a real place going actually out on the sea and there's no kind of feel of it of uh, you know, there's a, there's an air of believability about it all, even though the story itself is obviously you know kind of ridiculous. Um, the idea of a shark uh, destroying a whole boat is something that is you know ever so slightly outside the range of the the range of possibility, but the way the film portrays it is is utterly kind of grounded in reality.
0: Mm. I, I read a, um, uh, a kind of an interview with Peter Benchley. And um, he said something along the lines of, Had I known more about sharks, I wouldn't have written that book. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, I mean, in the book, it kind of jumps out of the water and kind of, uh, you know, kind of proper shamus people out of the boat, um, kind of leaping, kind of grabs, which sharks do do, but uh, I don't mean they go over boats. Um, no. Um, well, they don't really kind of attack boats. They're kind of quite timid um, uh, creatures, um, majestic animals, um, not kind of. Uh, kind of cold-blooded killers of innocent children which is weird, it's it's a part of the the film's um, kind of impact really that um, a a film that genuinely made people irrationally scared of just water in general Mm. Um, I mean everyone has had uh, like well I'm assuming everyone has the same kind of like uh, mental thing as me if I ever get into a swimming pool on my own I'm assuming that somewhere there's a trapdoor, where a shark will come in and eat me, um, <laughs> because of Jaws, which is insane. People are scared to go in the water in Britain, uh, or you know places where, uh, you know, you don't really even get uh, any kind of small sharks, let alone kind of uh, man-eating sharks. Um, and it's absurd that a film can have that much power. Mm, to the
1: extent that the sequels' tagline was just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water,
0: mm, yeah. If if any film's going to make you be terrified to go back in, uh, go in the water, it's Jaws. And then if anything can undo all that good work, it's the three Jaws sequels. <laughs> um, uh,
1: speaking of taglines, I saw uh, two in my reading on it. The the two taglines for the original film that we use on various posters, which I thought were absolutely great. The first one was "See it before you go swimming." Sure. which I think is a, a nice one and then the second one for when uh, later in the run which was see it again with your eyes open which I think are both play very heavily onto the film's rec- uh, reputation as uh, an absolutely terrifying thrill ride
0: mm. yeah 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 i think i would have gone with something like you try watching it without your legs uh, aiming it squarely at people who have been attached by, attacked by sharks <laughs> to try and just tap in on that market to see if it genuinely is that terrifying um, something that's interesting to me is some, something we've talked about before um, is kind of films with like troubled productions and we've always said you know it's rarely a good sign um, when a film starts shooting without a script being finished or it's never a good sign when a film runs over Um but that's exactly what happened with Jaws. I think the film was hurried into production to kind of avoid an actor's strike, wasn't it? Um, they they yeah. had to have completed principal photography by a certain date, so they kind of rushed it into production without a finished script, and it was being kind of written and rewritten by, I think, four or five writers and uh, you know, director making his second like proper feature film. Um, you know, special effects that wouldn't work. Uh, they, I think the original shooting was like 50-odd days, and they ended up shooting for 150 days. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that just would not happen now. A film would be locked down. You know, they would, they would kind of remove the director and bring in John Frankenheimer, probably. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something that somehow seems to have uh, ended up with a masterpiece coming out at the end
1: yeah I mean the budget as well was massively over the top. It was budgeted for about three point three million and ended costing nine million, which in modern money would be going from about thirteen million to about fifty million mm. uh which is uh which is a crazy obviously it's that's very low both of those are very low budgets for a film these days but in terms of you know tripling the amount of money you're meant to spend on it as well as the amount of time you did it is uh quite incredible and uh, watching documentaries about it and reading about it, uh, it one of the things that's uh, interesting is just how aware they were of how badly things were going mm. like spielberg was talked about how uh, he was at a party with an actress while they were filming and the actress said who, who had, was over visiting from la said oh everyone in the town says that this is a disaster and that you're a disaster and that no one's ever going to hire you and so, as he was filming it, and as he was deep in the weeds on this thing, he was thinking, "This may be the last thing I ever get to shoot on thirty-five millimeter." You know, and it's his second film, and he made—I think—in his mind, it was very a real possibility that if the film didn't turn out well, that he could, you know, never direct another film and go back to directing uh, TV movies again, or, or kind of pilots on of detective shows, which is what he had done up until the Sugarland Express. And you're right; it's crazy. That film directed by someone who had some experience but wasn't exactly like a dab hand wasn't someone who they could point to a long track record and say, sure, he's going over budget, it's going long, but you know he can deliver the goods. It's not like when Francis Ford Coppola was making Apocalypse Now and he could point to the six Oscars he'd already won. Mm. You know, he it wasn't it wasn't he wasn't anywhere near that level. Uh, and yet, because I think the producers. Who he had worked with on Sugarland Express trusted him, and because uh, I think they uh, had someone like Werner Fields, who apparently who was his editor on the film, but also acted as kind of a go between the, between the producers and Spielberg, and was very heavily involved in a lot of on-set decisions. I think having someone like that who was very trusted to kind of act as a as a protector from that sort of
0: thing probably helped a lot. Mm. and it's it's the kind of thing that it, uh, Jaws is kind of a perfect storm of these, these problems that affect production um, kind of making necessity very much the mother of invention, talked about Werner mm. Fields there, everyone knows that uh, the shark didn't particularly work and they didn't really have anywhere near the amount of footage they wanted with the, the mechanical shark um, and Werner Fields is very active in cutting around it um, famously if you you sit down and watch the film it's it's nearly an hour and 20 minutes, I think, until you actually see the shark properly. Um, it's
1: and the 77th minute, to be precise. I, uh, I checked when it when I was watching it today.
0: Wow. That's that's quite a long time to sit through um, mm. uh, with that. But, you know, they suggest and imply and edit around it. It is one of the most immaculately edited films um, that you can watch. You know, I've kind of said this several times before, but anyone studying film studies anyone wants to to kind of learn how to construct a film or build tension or um uh create an atmosphere using all of the tools uh of a visual medium is just to watch uh the attack on the kintner boy um all kind of done uh from uh chief brody's point of view when he's kind of on the beach um and he uses everything uh in the old arsenal of a director um that you can use, um, to astonishing effect, and you could probably you know, we could do a podcast for hours on just that scene um, but uh, what was it, oh yeah, no yeah, saying um, Verna Fields um, that I found the other day that, 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 that there was an article online that was showing kind of vintage stills from the set of Jaws, and they actually had the shark come right out of the water and the, the, the child actor was in the in the jaws of the shark but didn't work for whatever reason. All you see is the the Lilo go under, a bit of blood, and you know a fin rolling over. That's all you need, and it's terrifying.
1: It, it is. I think a lot of the great part of what what's really great about the film is that it's bit built on suggestion and reactions.
0: Mm. So you
1: get a little bit of blood in the water, and then people panic, and that sells the horror of it all. Um, also, one of the things that Verna Fields did was that she, her pool provided the uh, location for when they shot the insert of uh, Ben Gardner's head floating up as uh, as Hooper goes underneath and sees it, which is uh, the scariest thing in the film, And yeah. to the extent that when I watched the making of today, when it came up, I was still shocked, even though they were talking about it in a very academic sense and talking about why the scene worked, it still scared me. Um, and that's one of the best jump scares in cinema because... I was thinking about it today, it's something that is like watching a scene, like listening to a song in an odd time signature, like when Hooper goes up to the hole in the side of the boat, you think, okay, like, he's going to hang there for a few seconds, and then the head's going to appear, mm-hmm. but no, he gets up to it, and then the head's immediately there, so mm-hmm. it kind of wrong-foots you, and every time I watch it, I forget the exact point the head shows up, and I think that's because you're kind of conditioned to expect certain beats to unfold in a certain way. And I think that's one of Spielberg's uh, underrated qualities is that he's such a master of these tried and true techniques that he knows when he can kind of tweak them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they've re-edited that scene. I think they show it and it didn't quite have the effect and he kind of, then he changed the, the timing of it and, uh, mm. and it kind of uh, gets you and it does get you every time it is a great jump. Um, you know a jump created by a where again it makes no sense in the in the film that a a shark would bite a man's head off and it Mm. it would just flow out of a hole but again you kind of forget that because the story is so engrossed in the atmosphere he's gone kind of deep sea diving in the dark which is terrifying um Mm -hmm. and yeah you just kind of all that kind of melts away when you're kind of so engrossed in it um it was considered by most people um, to be the the kind of archetypal summer blockbuster, the first of its kind. It was, uh, you know, up until then, you know, summer was a dead period. People didn't want to be in, inside a kind of dark room when the, when the sun was out. They wanted to be outside doing something, and swimming safely in the ocean, possibly. Um, <laughs> but Jaws changed all that. Um, and uh, we kind of have it to thank for, you know, transformers 3 i guess um but the thing that strikes me every time i watch it is even though it is um the kind of first summer blockbuster um you know aimed at a target audience built around special effects it feels so far divorced from everything that follows
1: yeah i was i was thinking that today as well how it's, like you say, it's often considered to be one of the films longest Star Wars that helped kill off the new Hollywood in a lot of ways that kind of shifted it away from making these films that would open in a few markets and expand slowly and then you could have an adult audience and films could build through re- reviews and things like that uh, to this model of releasing ev- a film everywhere at once, which uh, had only previously been done for films that people thought were terrible. Mm. Um, because your thinking was well this isn't going to build up any traction if we release it slowly so we need to get it out there now so that we can get ahead of the bad word um which but this was a case of a film that was actually great that tested really well got some of the best scores that universal had ever come up with and which allowed spielberg to tweak the film and you know it is it, fun watching uh, him being interviewed about it because the way he talks about it he just says that he got really greedy about ha- trying to uh, get as much as big scares out of it as possible and editing things to to really uh, accentuate how horrible it was, uh, but even though it has that reputation as something that killed off the seventies style of filmmaking, uh, watching it today, I was struck by how much closer it is to the films that it allegedly killed than to the ones that it inspired. Mm. Um, it has a very loose feel, at least in part because of the improvisational nature of the the scenes. You know, they they didn't have a script a lot of the time, so. Carl Gottlieb, who co-wrote a lot of the film, was often there on set helping people improv lines, and obviously the most famous line of the film, which is, you're going to need a bigger boat was well, an ad-lib on set, and things like that. But even just some of Spielberg's choices, like the uh, the first time you meet Brody, the camera's handheld and following you from his house, and it looks like something from like a Cassavetes film and things like that. And even though it, it, it has a lot more polish and a lot more kind of narrative uh, thrust to it than a lot of films of the new Hollywood era, it still feels very much the case where you're watching, okay, this is a film that's emerging from this very specific cultural content context. It's not like something that came from nowhere and then just, you know, leveled everything.
0: Mm. And we've talked about it before that even though it's a action movie, it's a thriller, it's a creature feature, it's a, you know, a big budget blockbuster based around special effects. It is featuring proper characters Uh, who have, you know, clear motivation and, um, you know, rounded personalities who you care about, uh, having dialogue and uh, kind of uh, uh, interacting with each other in a way that kind of makes you care and uh, kind of bonds you to them and um, it doesn't feel false or anything like that, which now seems to be... You know, you would just never have that. You would never have that. You'd never have, for instance, the scene on the ferry where it's just one continuous shot uh, of um, Chief Brody and the mayor talking for two minutes, uh, straight dialogue scene. Um, You wouldn't have that without some kind of business going on in the background. And I I felt that when I watched the Bridge of Spies trailer um, today there was you know a big cgi scene of a of a plane getting shot down and kind nice. of a pilot being kind of ejected and it's just like that there's so many quiet moments in jaws so many small moments that kind of uh balance out the fact that a shark is going to come halfway out of the water and kind of defy gravity um and kind of chew a man to death um and it kind of makes it more grounded i guess
1: yeah, and it also is a film that engages with the world around it. It obviously takes place, and it's kind of a fantastical story, but there are hints here and there of you know what America was like at the time. Like it's it's kind of significant to me that Brody is a New York cop who's moved to Amity to escape from the city, essentially, because uh, as everyone would have known at that time, New York was a hellhole. <laughs> Um, and it was this terrifying place where no one would really want to bring up a family, and you know that that places it in the same realm as you know you can imagine Brody walking through the streets, walking for the background of Taxi Driver or something. You know that's that's the world he's escaping for this supposed supposed calm and peace of amity, uh, and also it reflects uh, you know th- this sense of distrust about the government in the fact that the mayor. Operates in his own self-interest and in the interest of the ta- in the the commercial interest of the town instead of actually doing what's right for the people, uh, which is something written about by uh, Rick Perlstein in his book *The Invisible Bridge*, which is actually a book about the rise of conservatism in the the seventies after Nixon was impeached. But uh, he writes in there about Jaws, why how Jaws has this kind of cath- had this uh, cathartic effect for people at the time who basically had lost all trust in their government so seeing a film in which these disparate these three disparate men managed to work together and overcome the horrible uh self-interest of their their leaders you know has it obviously reflects something in the culture uh but also something that roger ebert wrote in his first review about it was that it's a it's a fairly simplistic story, but it's not one. And that means that you can read lots of things into it in terms of, you know, the cultural context and theme, but it doesn't insist on it. There's no one having this big speech about these sort of things. Any big speech in the film is something like the Indianapolis speech where someone is just kind of talking and it's all coming from character rather than being didactic.
0: Mm. It's interesting that, um, the, when um, Sheffield theatres reopened, it went dark for like two years because they were renovating it. But they reopened. Uh, they reopened with uh, the Henrik Ibsen play, uh, *Enemy of the People*, um, mm. which is uh, a massive influence on Jaws, um, and it's really obvious if you watch the play. It's about kind of a, a Danish doctor, I think he's Danish, Scandinavian definitely, who um, has found out that there's a, you know a kind of a hot spring bath that's opened and. It's going to bring lots of people to the town, but he's found out that the water's poisonous and if people go there, they'll get really ill and he becomes the one rational man um, in the town against everyone else, including the money-grabbing mayor who uh, wants to kind of keep the baths open and he wants to kind of shut them down. Um, But that that play was written in response to... um, Henry Gibson had written another play called Ghosts, which was uh, seen as an absolute scandal at the time and he was, you know, the one rational man defending the kind of freedom of speech around the crazy people um that were kind of trying to bring him down and i've always found that kind of fascinating that that idea has kind of transposed hundreds of years through time um and has managed to stay so universal even though he's just stuck a massive shark in it
1: Mm, or the the fact that quint is essentially ahab and the last half hour is in many ways, very indebted to Moby Dick, mm. uh, as reflected by the fact that Spielberg really wanted to include a scene in the film of Quint going to a movie theater and watching the Gregory Peck version of Moby Dick and laughing uproariously at, <laughs> at how ridiculous it was—the the ideas of these people hunting this creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's an, an, another thing that's great about it is that you can look at the film and you can make these references to classic works of literature. You can look at it and say, "Oh, it's like Enemy of the People. It's like Moby Dick," but. Again, the film, I mean, if they had included that Moby Dick scene, it probably would have been a bit too on the nose, and mm-hmm. it may have been uh, serendipitous that it didn't end up being in there. Uh, but, you know, the, the way that it's uh, constructed, it doesn't force, it doesn't act, you know, kind of super, uh, it doesn't kind of hit you over the head with it. Um, the, the Ibsen thing actually man, reminded me, I saw recently, uh, while we're young, the uh, Noah Barnback film, and that starts with a quote from, Ibsen about... I can't remember which play it is, but it's one about young people kind of knocking down the door of this person and wondering whether or not they should let them in or something. Mm. And it's so on the nose about what the film is about, that, and so fucking pretentious <laughs> that you just kind of think, if this play... If this film started without that, I would not uh, immediately dislike it as much as I do. I mean, the film kind of won me back a little bit, but that was not a good start. So the the fact that Jaws has these elements to it but it doesn't act so superior by mentioning them is is something that, you know, adds to that sense that it's something you, you can enjoy as a straightforward action film and then you can read into it wherever you can on top of that simplicity.
0: Mm. And it, um, Mark Comeau's wrote a really great article this week. It's uh, kind of, I think, sort of The Guardian or The Observer. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of his first point that kind of runs throughout the film is uh, Jaws isn't, really isn't a film about a shark, uh, it's you know a film about people. It's a film about lots of other things, and it can be a film about uh, whatever you want to kind of read into it. Um, but in the absence of the shark and the suggestion of the shark, um, people have you know found what they want in there. Uh,
1: one of the things I I like about it is that the, there's a balance in there between the characters being archetypal and that you can look at them as different versions of masculinity. Uh, or representing, you know, archetypes in society, but the characters are also written and performed in a way that has lots of specificity to them. And also in, like, little telling details, like one of my favourite things in it is the mayor's jacket with the little anchors, Mm. because it's just a wonderful bit of kitsch to them. And it's exactly the sort of thing that you you would expect a mayor of this like little towns to where for whenever he has to be seen by tourists, you know, it's really play up to this particular image of them as this kind of really small tourist destination. And also I like the fact that he, you only see him wear it twice. You see, it, and both times it's when the beach is meant to be open.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: and when, it, what, and then when the beaches have been closed, he's wearing this kind of horribly garish pinstripe suit. <laughs> um, but stuff like that is just, it just shows a level of attention to detail, that uh, is, is one of the things that really sets it apart. You know, if someone else had made the film, they may not have decided to have those little telling details happening in the background.
0: Mm. One thing that uh, continually strikes me when I when I see the film is you could look at the film as two separate films merged together. The first, a film about a community kind of under attack from an unseen force that is a kind of a threat that needs to be dealt with. And the second half of the film is a sea adventure um, and they tonally feel very different, but kind of almost stylistically feel quite different. And I'm stunned every time I see the film that there there isn't a jarring aspect between the two kind of halves of the film because it is literally almost an hour of one and hour of the other.
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think I think the large re- the reason why it works so well for me is that the music adds a lot of continuity to it
0: because
1: mm. obviously. You're introduced to the sharks theme at the beginning, and then that goes through throughout the film, and also has uh, you know that great moment where they condition you to expect it to play every time there's going to be an attack, and then uh, towards the end of the film there's a moment where the shark rears its head out, and there's no music, so it's genuinely shocking because you're subconsciously the film has prepared you for it, saying okay we've made a pact this musical play to let you know the sharks nearby and then it doesn't play and it's genuinely horrifying to see it appear and, and shocking um, but I think that the even though the music also changes a bit obviously you have the main theme but you also have these kind of wonderful uh, kind of high-spirited adventure themes that play when they're on the boat or when they're chasing after the shark mm. uh, I, I think the underlying kind of subconscious element of the music is what makes you think this is all part of the same story because part of the film is remaining pretty much consistent throughout.
0: Mm. Um in a lot of ways, when I've talked about the film kind of feeling totally divorced from the um the blockbuster that we know now. I felt almost like it could be a film from like if they could have gone on location in like the forties or whatever, it had that kind of feel, especially with, like you say, with those kind of uh, the kind of sea adventurer kind of themes and and some of the characters, it, it, it feels like a massive throwback and what I'm kind of struggling with is films that were made in the 70s including Jaws now, which is, you know, 40 years old are starting to feel like they're kind of 80 years old Hmm. Yeah,
1: because the technology has advanced so much that something like I mean, even Jurassic Park, which I watched bits of the other day because uh, NBC and their associated channels aired it uh, to kind of Prep people for Jurassic World, that looks so ancient compared to Jurassic World. Mm. <laughs> you know, even though they're the same, they supposedly take place in the same world and, you know, they've got the same producers and all these sort of things, uh, the actual sense of continuity between the two feels so false because one of them takes place largely on physical sets and looks like something where people actually went somewhere and they were actin- uh, acting with, you know, models and things like that. And this new one just looks like a load of people running around, whilst uh, completely fake animals run alongside them.
0: Mm. It's weird, isn't it? that like you associate a certain look and feel with the uh, um, you know certain eras of filmmaking, In the kind of the golden age of Hollywood, the kind of thirties, forties, fifties. You had the kind of the camera equipment was too heavy, and you couldn't really move the camera a lot, quite static, long takes, and then you kind of get into more handheld stuff, and then we get round to the point now where almost got we're back in the kind of studio system where films are shot on lots but they're just green screen and we kind of we can do anything we want so nothing kind of feels real and it's yeah it's very peculiar to kind of see uh blockbuster you look at something like Jurassic Park, Jaws and I don't know, something like Avatar, um, you know, kind of thirty five years separates those films. Um but it could be kind of epochs given how kind of much each each kind of uh, evolutionary step has taken us on.
1: Mm. And also you have the fact that a lot of the films that were made in the 70s, stuff like Taxi Driver in Nashville and things like that, because the consensus about what pe- audience wanted had been eroded and studios had decided they were going to hand the reins over, or at least they were going to give a little more slack to these young people up and coming. You would get films that were very... Uh, stylistically very distinct from these young people who had grown up watching like like Scorsese who grew up watching melodramas and musicals and wanted to bring some of that vibrancy to something dark and disturbing like Taxi Driver or something like Alice Doesn't Live Anymore where he he shoots the opening part of it like it's gone with the wind. Mm. Um, I think that the fact that studios were putting a decent amount of money into those sort of films because they didn't really know what else to put their money into uh, whereas now the The most of the money goes to films that cost a huge amount to make, and someone like Scorsese, if he came up now, would probably be making films for five million dollars to make the sort of films that he would want to make. But uh, you know, he just the money wouldn't be there to release it. It would probably play on like a hundred screens or something. Whereas in those days, it would play throughout the country and have a long time for people to find
0: it. Mm, Yeah. Um, Speaking of kind of digital effects and, and progression and how, kind of bringing it back to the start of the episode, talked about the common complaint being that the shark looks fake. Um, Are you surprised um, that they haven't redone the shark, given uh, that um, Spielberg did CGI up E.T., a film that didn't particularly need it um, for its kind of anniversary, that are you surprised that he hasn't done it for Jaws, uh, a film that some people seem to think does need it?
1: I I think he probably would have done it if the response to him doing it to E. T. wasn't very vitriolic. Like, people hated the fact that he did it and were not uh were not uh, quiet about the fact that they hated it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that had people have been like, Oh yeah, that's fine. That they, you know, if South Park hadn't made an entire episode mocking it, you know, he may have decided to do it for the twenty fifth anniversary or the the thirtieth anniversary, but instead Oh, no, wouldn't have done it for the 25th, because that was before he, he used to think. But, you know, maybe for the 30th anniversary, he would have redone it. But I think he realized that that, that was a terrible mistake. And uh, then, you know, that was what made him say, you know what, we're not going to go back and retouch everything. The, the film is the film. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's, a, that's the, the, the main thing, is that he listened to what people said and they thought, okay, yeah, I won't do that. You know, I, I can't... Uh, show disrespect to the filmmaker that I was
0: Mm. yeah it's always a weird one isn't it like I'm kind of so mistrustful of filmmakers now especially kind of that duo of uh, of um, Lucas and Spielberg that they will go back and tinker um, even in the slightest ways Um, but I think Spielberg's reluctance um, kind of just about saves him uh, I've never actually seen that E.T. Uh, with the digital effects. I've seen, obviously, clips of it, but, uh, you know, it wasn't something I especially thought was needed.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I I saw it on DVD not long after it was released, and I didn't think it was egregiously bad. It's not like all the stuff they added to Star Wars, where it really distracts you, but there's just enough change that when you watch it, you kind of think, oh, this is a weird choice. Like, if you'd Watched, uh, if you'd never seen ET before and then you watched it and that was the first thing you watched, you probably wouldn't notice it too much. Mm. So it's not, they're, they're just kind of little choices that irk people who've seen the film before, as opposed to, uh, I think a lot of the stuff in Star Wars because you're seeing stuff that is 20 years more advanced than the stuff that's in the, the parts that isn't changed. It's really glaringly obvious the stuff they added,
0: mm. yeah, yeah. Um, I thought they might have added a scene in uh, where Henry Thomas discovers ET for the first time and just hacks it to death uh, <laughs> because I think we've all realised now that that's exactly what we'd do.
1: Yeah, or or at the very least, you just kind of punch it in the face, just reactively, and then be like, "Oh, yeah, sorry."
0: Mm, mm, yeah. You, you shocked
1: me a bit there, being a creature from another world <laughs> and unlike
0: anything I've ever seen. Me being a child uh, and kind of like wondrous at, at once, but also incredibly terrified of you, kind of bug-eyed freak. <laughs> Um, yeah <laughs> yeah um so yeah that's jaws uh 40 years old um and kind of not really looking at its age um and still a masterpiece uh but then it's weird to say of a film that's 40 years old it is a modern masterpiece
1: yeah i think i definitely feel like it it feels far enough ahead of its time in certain ways and that you can look at it and you can see oh yeah this is this is stuff that would go on to influence filmmaking for a very long time, and you can tell that a whole generation of people watched it and they were like, Oh yeah, this is this is what makes me want to make filmmaking. Mm. You know, it feels very much like one of the key texts of uh, of modern blockbuster making. And also, you know, when we were talking about the the trouble production, something I thought was quite funny reading about it today is just how serendipitous a lot of it is. Like the sharp not working meant that they had to used techniques that were better uh, Dick Richards, the original director saying he always wanted to make a film about a whale <laughs> getting him fired before they even started filming uh, Peter Benchley naming it Jaws as a last minute thing and then Spielberg looking at it and saying hey, this has four letters and my film Jewel had four letters, I really want to make this, you know, there's just all these things which uh, if someone wrote this in a book you would think that's a little that's a bit much, it's a bit precious mm. but it's such a thing of legend now it's such a thing of legend now that you think, yeah, this this film almost had to be made the way that it did, and something was guiding it.
0: Yeah, the Force probably,
1: or the swat, the if <laughs> in when space wars, which I think, I think is, I think if if we're in any universe, we're probably in the space wars universe.
0: Yeah, yeah, with the, the great joke about the the film being made as you're watching it, when is now, now, but when will soon be now in the future kind of soon <laughs> no, yeah it's very good um uh, did i just say Spaceballs is very good i don't please don't tell me that it's actually terrible but that's a lot yeah, it's a, of, it's an of awful film in places and i've seen it about 162 times um it was a repeated uh rented film as a as a youth um anyway for uh that side uh let's do shot reverse shot recommends uh what are you going to pick out for us this Ed?
1: Uh, I'm going to recommend a little film called Jaws, mm. released in 1975. Uh, no, uh, a film I just mentioned, uh, Jewel, the sort of debut by Spielberg. Uh, it's not. It's sort of because it was given a small theatrical release in Europe, but it was actually made for American television. And uh, it was a kind of key to Jaws being made because it's essentially the same story, except instead of a shark, it's a truck and it's about a man played by Dennis Weaver who's chased by this uh, truck driver across America, and it's an incredibly tense and well-made film, and it has a lot of techniques that uh, Spielberg would then use in Jaws, and in terms of kind of understanding why he would be drawn to this story, it's, it's a very kind of important, but it's also just an incredibly well-made and exciting film to watch. Mm. And again, it's another example of taking a premise that should be ridiculous... And making it work through uh, how grounded it is. The only problem I think is the voiceover. There's some uh, voiceover stuff they've added to uh, illuminate the characters' thoughts, which always feels a little much. But otherwise, it's uh, you know, if you want to see the uh, early, uh, early inkling of genius, then it's uh, it's a good good one to watch.
0: I'm going to recommend um, something a bit unusual this week. I've, I've not really seen a great deal of films this week because uh, regular listeners will know. Um, I've been kind of, uh, given best man duties at a wedding, which was yesterday. Um, but I've been kind of like, uh, balls deep in preparation for that a week, uh, mm-hmm. writing speeches, so on and so forth. So I haven't really had the chance to sit down and watch many films, but one thing I did do when I was kind of, uh, up burning the midnight oil, um, kind of not wanting to kind of keep my wife awake. Um, I was working on the speech and I had the birds on in the background, but I watched it completely without sound. Which um is something I would heartily recommend someone does, and a lot of people have said this about, um, especially Hitchcock's films which are kind of um put together in such a way, um, because he once said that like, you know, a film should work without any dialogue. You know, you should be able to just watch it and know what's going on. And I never really kind of thought about that and you kind of no one ever really has got the time to sit down and say, right, well I'm gonna watch this deliberately without the sound on because that's stupid. But I did it. Um and I have to say it's stunning how well that film works and how, um, if you want to learn anything about composition and editing, um, which you could do from watching that scene with the attack of the kitten boy in Jaws, um, but watching something like Jaws, uh, sorry, watching something like The Birds um, is fascinating. Yeah, and if you want to also learn
1: about how not to do composition, try doing that with the remake of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. (laughs) Watch that without sound and that film is incomprehensible.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think um, Steven Soderbergh, uh, he, he kind of occasionally does kind of video essays or kind of things he puts up online to kind of, um, uh, kind of other straight points. I think he did a similar thing um, last year where he um, took Raiders of the Lost Ark and removed the soundtrack. And I think he just put a kind of temp, a temp track over the top, which was just a, a kind of the same kind of theme going over again. It didn't go in time with the music or anything. And his point was... Uh, to watch and see how it was composed, and I think you took the colour out of it as well. It was black and white, um, and you, you know you were to watch it as an exercise in how to construct a film visually to kind of tell your story. And yeah, doing it with Hitchcock is is um, a real eye opener, which I, I didn't kind of I didn't expect to kind of be as drawn into it because I was supposed to be concentrating on doing a speech, um, but I wasn't. I was kind of sucked in uh, by the birds.
1: Yeah, I think uh, a film because a. Uh... For, to take you behind the curtains a little bit, sometimes when we're recording this, we will have films or something on in the background. And uh, I found myself very drawn in by the remake of Godzilla, which is a film that I liked when I saw it in the cinema a lot. But watching it without the sound on, uh, it's actually a little more compelling in some of the action, the uh, the non-action scenes.
0: Mm. Watching it without, without sound probably um, makes some of it make more sense. Like how can a giant lizard move around the city unheard? <laughs> uh, unseen and kind of creep up on people and and no one knows where it is, um, or why is this bit just like Jurassic Park? Uh, or yeah, it's that I have to say it. I did watch Godzilla, uh, the remake, um, not the uh, Gareth Edwards one, um, the the, oh. the, Bro- the Matthew Broderick one, um, like last year, and it is. I thought it was horrifying with sound and dialogue, um, truly awful.
1: Yeah, one of the uh, the worst blockbusters of the 90s.
0: Yeah, which probably can't even be
1: sh Can't even be saved by Jamiroquai.
0: Yeah, um, well, yeah, there's not a lot that can be. Let's not get <laughs> on to Jamiroquai again and his uh, top-secret government uh, <laughs> projects. <laughs> um, but, yeah, um, that's what we're recommending this week. I promise to have seen a, a film uh, properly that, uh, for next week. Um, okay, cool. Um, just a reminder that we're coming up to hundred episodes. We are two episodes away, I believe. Ed, is that correct? Yep, this is ninety-eight. And if you want to get involved uh, in our um, episode hundred, which is a send us your questions and we'll answer it. Uh, no stupid questions. There are no stupid questions, so just let them kind of let them fly, and then we'll choose to answer the ones that are not stupid. Um, and yeah, if you want to get in touch with us through Twitter, you can find us there, um, and on Facebook. Um, and if you follow a link in this uh, description of uh, of this episode, you'll you know find all the ways to contact us. Um, until next week, um, which I think we've got an artist profile coming next week. Uh, it's goodbye from me
1: and goodbye from me
0: and goodbye from me.